Well, as the Vanderpools reminded us, this is the third week of Advent. It is the week of joy, and Christmas is a season of joy. I hope that you are experiencing joy, but I also hope that in the midst of this season, you are experiencing something else. I hope that you are experiencing awe. I hope that you're experiencing awe. Awe is something, especially if you're a child, you know all about the awe of Christmas. So, Kids, I need you to help me with something. I need you to raise your hand if you get excited about Christmas. Here's the thing. If you have kids, if you are a kid, or if you were a kid, you know all about the awe and the joy and the excitement of Christmas, right? We all know about it. There is something about being a kid at Christmas that is just unmatched. It is so, so exciting. There, there are the presents, right? Any kids like presents? I mean, let's be honest, right? The presents, there are the cookies, there are the lights, there are all the get-togethers, there's the family. All of these great things make Christmas such a special, special time. When I was in sixth grade, I think, there were two things that I wanted for Christmas. I wanted a dog, and I wanted a bike. I wanted a dog, and I wanted a bike. And my parents knew that I wanted a dog, and they knew that I wanted a bike. I think my parents are watching right now. Mom and Dad, I wanted a dog, and I wanted a bike. I wanted a dog, and I wanted a bike. And I longed for these things. And I remember thinking back, I wonder if I can, like, you know, hear any little hints about what I'm going to be getting. Kind of listen in. Christmas morning came, and my sister and I got up, and we went out to the tree with my parents, And we got to the tree, and I looked at the tree. And I noticed two things. One, I noticed that there wasn't anything under that tree that was big enough to be a bike. And I noticed that there wasn't anything under that tree that was noisy enough to be a dog. And I was disappointed. We opened the presents, and they were great gifts. You know, everything else was great. But there wasn't a dog, and there wasn't a bike. Moment after that, my parents said, well, let's go in the family room. So we went to the family room, and what was in front of me but a beautiful new mountain bike. I was thrilled. I was so excited. I was upgrading from my blue one-speed Huffy to this beautiful mountain bike with suspension. Oh, it was fantastic. The only problem is it snowed, and I couldn't ride it right away. But I got the bike. I was so excited. And I remember, even though I couldn't ride it right away, I'd go out into the garage, and I'd look at it, and I'd, you know, I'd play with the brakes, and I'd sit on the seat, and had like a little pouch in there. I'd play with the zipper, and you know, just all the things you can do in the garage without actually going out and riding it. But I was so excited. I longed for this. And I remember the awe that I had when I saw this beautiful new mountain bike. It was fantastic. I think most of us can think back to a time where there's something about Christmas that just left us in awe. But what I think is true is that as we get older, the awe of Christmas starts to diminish, at least a little bit. At least a little bit. There's nothing like the awe of Christmas as a child. But it starts to diminish. And unfortunately, I think this happens with our spiritual lives as well. I think the awe and the wonder of God often begins to 
dissipate over time. Especially in times of trial and suffering, we forget about how big God is. We forget about his sovereign nature, that he's in control of everything that's going on in our lives. This was kind of the case for the Israelite people that we've been looking at here in chapter 40. The Israelites are in exile. They're in Babylonian captivity. Things aren't going their way. They're facing all these trials and these tribulations. They're longing to be saved. They want to go back home. And as we've seen here in chapter 40, there are these words of comfort and encouragement that are given. Beautiful words of comfort and encouragement. And then in verse 9, there's this call to announce this encouraging news, this awesome news about the nature of Yahweh in whom the Israelites trust everybody. People need to know this. The Israelites certainly had a rocky relationship with God. They didn't always come along easily. Sometimes they came along kicking and screaming. They fought. They, they had moments of defiance. They had moments where they were disobedient. But just like us today, God was with them. God was with them in the midst of these trials and tribulations. And these words of comfort that were being shared with them were to remind them of that. He remained awesome. In spite of their exile, in spite of their captivity, God remained with them, and he was awesome. And so in verse 9, it says this. It says, here is your God. There's this declaration I love the word that is used in the ESV translation. Instead of saying, here is, it says, behold. And I like the word behold better because I think it it, it causes us to reflect and consider maybe on another level than here is tends to do. So behold your God. Consider. Take in. Reflect on your God. This is news that must be heard by everyone. The news of the greatness of of God, news of encouragement. And so last week we looked at this image of God as a shepherd. We see this imagery throughout Scripture. We see it in places like uh, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. We see it in John when when Jesus is talked about as, as the good shepherd. And this passage kind of foreshadows that to some degree. But then we get to verses 12 through 17, and that's where we're going to land today. And in these verses, there's this series of questions and statements that truly illuminate the grandeur, and the awesome nature of God. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 17. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. The word of the Lord. We see these incredible, incredible statements. 
that show the amazing and truly awesome nature of God. Awesome is a word that I use a lot. You may use it a lot as well. But when I use the word awesome, it's like, oh, that's awesome. You know, that's, that's cool. That's fine. We're not talking about that. When awesome is used here, we are talking about stupendous. We're talking about truly awe-inspiring. I thought I'd put awesome into Google and see the definition that came up and, and some of the synonyms that come up for awesome. And there are a lot of them. The one that really caught my attention, though, was amazeballs. Who knew? But God is awesome. And this picture that is painted of God is so hard to fathom. I mean, how can you really wrap your mind around this idea of God holding and measuring the water in the hollow of his hand? How can we do that? It is truly mind-bending. And what a powerful and truly awesome picture this paints for us. And this is only an attempt, remember, to communicate who God is. Because ultimately, all of our our attempts fail. They come up short because we are finite. Our, Our imagination, our minds are finite. We cannot fully comprehend who God is. And yet, in its limited capacity, this paints this beautiful picture. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held dust, the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? I recently finished a book on Norse mythology. And within Norse mythology, you find some really great characters like Thor. Thor is a fantastic character. But in addition to Thor, you also have these great characters like giants. There are giants, and and you hear these descriptions of of these towering, powerful, imposing figures, and you can't help but wonder what it would be like if you encountered a giant. How scary that would be. If If there was a giant in here, how terrified it would be to be in their presence. And here, on an exponentially larger scale, we find the God of all creation described. But he is no mythical creature. This is the one true God. And this imagery is not used to provoke fear or concern, but it is provided to shed light on who God is so that the Israelites might be comforted and have assurance. The Israelites are being reminded that the God in whom they have, with whom they have covenanted is the God of all creation, that he is unparalleled, that he is worthy of our hope and our trust. I believe that there are moments in the lives of believers where on some level we catch this sort of glimpse of God. It might be that very first time after years and years of running from God where you realize that perhaps God is real and you turn your life over to him. It might be an occasion where you're reading scripture and the Holy Spirit enlightens a passage and you understand it in a new and deeper way. Or for many of us, it might be coming over a hill on a beautiful, crystal clear day and seeing Mount Rainier in front of you in all of its 14,000 plus feet of splendor. All of these things scream, here is your God. They point you to the God of all creation. And Isaiah is saying, it is the God of all creation that remains with you, Israelites, here, today, in exile. Isaiah goes on, who can fathom 
the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? When I read through these passages, I can't help but think about the book of Job and some of the last chapters in Job where God is speaking to him and he asks or he says some very, very similar sorts of things. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the lines upon it? He says, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Isaiah is pointing the exiled Israelites back to Yahweh, back to God, emphasizing his omnipresence and his omnipotence. He is present with them all the time, and he is always powerful, even in a struggle like being exiled and under captivity. God remains the same. And here's the thing. He doesn't need a cabinet of advisors. He doesn't need to hire a consultant. He and he alone is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Romans 11 33 through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, God is just that good. He is just that awesome. He is just that glorious. And in a similar way to how God poses these questions to Job to remind him of who he is, Isaiah is saying to the Israelites, don't forget who your God is. Here is your God. Take a look. Behold, here is your God. Take it in, observe, consider the glory and the awesomeness of Yahweh. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Hmm. I think if you were to go to QFC today and you were to pick up a newspaper or you were to open the news app on your phone, I'm guessing that you would see a different depiction of nations. We we build them up. We pontificate about their greatness. And the Israelites, too, while in exile, under captivity, were probably wrestling with this because they wanted to be a great nation. What nation doesn't? And while under the authority of another nation, Helen was wanting to be a great nation as well. They were wanting to stake their claim. They were wanting to expand their territory. And yet, that's not what God is impressed by. While at the same time these things were happening, God is communicating something different, something else. And they're reminded that nations and territories are nothing to God. I love how John Watts puts it. He said, God is not awed by them. 
God is not awed by nations. And Shania Twain put it this way, that don't impress me much. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. It makes me think about the family trips that we take going to the ocean. I love going to the beach and picking up the sand and feeling the sand. And it makes me think of picking up a handful of sand and holding it and loosely letting the sand go in the wind. It just blows away. God is not impressed by nations. But here is your God. Lebanon altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Isaiah continues using this kind of natural imagery, referencing Lebanon, which is this mountain range north of Israel. And it has these, these cedar forests. But in all of the cedar forests in Lebanon, there are not enough trees. There's not enough timber to make an adequate fire for an altar. Nor is there enough livestock to, to create or to offer an adequate sacrifice, offering. Isaiah uses powerful and poetic imagery that puts in perspective, if only in a finite way, the power and majesty and glory of God. You see, there, there are not enough trees, there's not enough timber in the Cascades to create an adequate altar. And there's not enough livestock in Montana to create an adequate offering. In fact, there is not enough timber in all of the world. There are not enough animals in all of creation to offer an adequate offering to God. Here is your God. Consider this. This is not a small God. This is the God of all creation. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Again, Isaiah comes back to nations. And he drives home the point that there is no nation that is too big or too powerful for God. It doesn't matter what weapons of mass destruction a nation might have. It doesn't matter what sort of nuclear arsenal a nation might have. It doesn't matter what strategies or schemes or plans a nation might have. It doesn't matter what terror might be threatened by a nation. God is not intimidated. And his plan will not be thwarted. In fact, Psalm 86.9 says, All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. Think about this. All of the nations, no matter how great, will bow down before the Lord. They will bow down before the God of all creation. He's not impressed by them. That is incredible. Here is your God. See, the Israelites, they're hearing this goodness of God proclaimed. And they're in a challenging circumstance. They're not just kicking back, living the high life. They're under persecution. They're, things are spiraling out of control. They're troubled. And it leaves them with a lot of questions, probably, regarding their significance and God's goodness. Can anyone relate to this? Anyone struggling with this this morning, feeling perhaps insignificant to God, questioning God's goodness, watching your life spiral perhaps out of control or in a direction that you never intended or desired. See, the Israelites were longing for God. And here Isaiah is speaking to a people that had lost their homes and that were struggling 
and he is communicating comfort and the steadfast nature of God. He's communicating care and the unfathomable glory of God. He's saying that despite your circumstances, Yahweh is truly awesome and he is still in control. Don't you forget it. And yet, this is a message that is so easy, especially in the midst of troubles. As people, we might even call God's goodness and awesomeness into question. Now, it is important to realize that the Israelites didn't always make the best choices. And the circumstances that they were facing were in response to that. They were making idolatrous choices, and they're facing consequences. And yet, in spite of their disobedience, they had not been forsaken. They had not been forgotten, and they, were, they, they remained loved by God. God still loved them in the midst of all of that. There certainly are experiences and consequences that we face in our lives. Adam and Eve certainly experienced consequences, and they're very similar to what we see here in Isaiah 40. They were exiled from the garden. Here the Israelites are exiled. I was on a walk the other day, a couple weeks ago. It was a beautiful night. I went out after dinner, and so it was dark out. And it was cool and crisp, and the stars were out. I was listening to a book. I love audio books. I'm listening to a novel at the time. And I'm almost home, almost home. And this quote stopped me in my tracks. And the quote was this. To what end, he wondered, had the divine created the stars in heaven to fill a man with feelings of inspiration one day and insignificance the next? I spent the rest of my walk wrestling with this question. Did God put the stars in the sky to inspire his creation? To create a sense of awe? On that walk, I certainly felt that. Looking at the stars, feeling the cool breeze, it was a beautiful night. I felt this sense of awe. I felt inspired as I looked up at the stars. But did God put the stars in the sky to make his creation feel insignificant? I don't think so. But I do think that the stars serve as a reminder of how great God is and how finite we are. I do think the stars serve as a reminder of how big God is, of how majestic God is. And I do think that they serve as a reminder of how desperately we need to know the God of heaven and earth. And this can stir a longing in our hearts for the awesome God of creation. And I think we need these these reminders that say to us, here is your God, don't forget This is your God. This is the God of all creation, and he loves you no matter where you're at, no matter what trial you are going through. I know I certainly need these reminders. I need reminders that it's not all about me. Anybody relate to that? This doesn't mean that I'm I'm insignificant or that you're insignificant to God, but it, it does remind me of his incredible significance, and it reminds me that I am significant to him. I need reminders that God doesn't need me to provide him with advice as much as I like to do that. I'm good at providing God with advice. And this doesn't mean that God doesn't want to hear from, him, hear from me, but he already has things under control. 
I need reminders that all the things that I try to build, all the things that I try to create, are like drops in a bucket. And they're like dust on a scale. Now this doesn't mean that God doesn't want me to use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that he's given me for good purposes. He does want that. But it does mean that they will always pale in comparison to the stars. When I don't have these reminders, I get so caught up in myself and my circumstances that I end up trying to do things under my own power. I end up trying to find comfort in other places. I end up trying to find my identity in other things. And I create idol after idol after idol. This is a foolish endeavor, and it is destined to leave me disappointed, unsatisfied, and as a creator of idols. Can anyone else relate? Of course, we all can relate to this. From the very things happening, we see Adam and Eve did this in the garden. We see the Israelites doing this, and we continue to do it today. And this is why we need to be reminded of the truly awesome and glorious nature of God. Not only of his nature, but also his active presence in our lives. See, the Israelites, they were reminded of who God is in order to provide them with comfort and hope. But this comfort and hope was rooted in God's active and sovereign engagement in their circumstances. It's quite possible that some of you are sitting here in this room today and you have forgotten just how amazing God is. And you are in in need of that reminder. And it's quite possible that there are some of you sitting in here today that haven't truly longed for God in quite some time. And it's quite possible that your circumstances are such that you've been trying to play God in your own life. And if this is the case, I I think that it's important to ask some hard questions. To ask, what am I putting my trust in? Am I putting it in my own abilities? Am I putting it in my bank account, in my network of connections? Where is my identity found? Is my identity found in my job, my title, in my nation? What leaves me in awe? What are the things that truly leave me in awe? And what do I really long for? Do I really long for God, or is there something else that has captivated my attention? See, the reality is we all find ourselves doing this. We forget about God. We don't make him our priority. We don't long for him. But here is the incredible thing. God never forgets us. Just like he didn't forget the exiled Israelites. And he longs for us. In fact, despite our lack of longing for him at times, he continues to say to us in so many ways, here is your God. Here I am. I'm still with you. He says, here is your God, and you will find him in a manger. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. He will be called Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Here is your God. He will be Emmanuel, God with you. And in spite of his splendor, as the one who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, 
he will take on flesh and be born in the most unassuming conditions. And he will come not to be served, but to serve. And he will humble himself. The, the creator of all, the awesome God, and he will become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because he is so awesome, and he so desperately longs for you. He is willing to do these things. Emmanuel, God with us, has stepped into your exile and mine to ransom us captive. Here's the thing. If you ever need a reminder of how awesome and faithful God is, let me encourage you to step outside on a clear night and look up at the moon and the stars. Because the moon and the stars that you see are the same moon and stars that hung in the sky while the Israelites were in exile. And the same moon and stars that dotted the sky over a little town called Bethlehem. Friends, here is your God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Our words are not sufficient to capture your glory. But Lord, we thank you for how glorious you are. For how amazing and awesome you are. Lord, we thank you that even when we fail to long for you, when we forget about your character, about your nature, about your love, you still long for us and you still extend those things to us. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to know you. Lord, it is so hard to comprehend that the God of all creation wants to have a relationship with me. In spite of all my shortcomings and my failures and my sin, Lord, you still desire to be in relationship with me, and I thank you for making a way for that to be possible. I thank you for the season of Advent, the season of longing and anticipation as we wait and anticipate the birth of your Son, our Savior. We thank you that you didn't send him to earth simply for a sightseeing trip, Lord, but to take on the weight of our sins, to die a criminal's death and to be raised from the dead. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. You are awesome. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.